Dr. Kelly Casperson is a surgical rock star, a urologist, a sexual medicine expert, an extremely successful podcaster, an author, and now a TED Talker. Kelly hosts the You Are Not Broken podcast, which can be found on Apple Podcasts and all other streaming services, which empowers women and the partners who love them with science and conversations to break down sexuality to improve the lives of the tens of thousands who listen each month. But we're not talking about sexuality in today's podcast. Not really. Dr. Casperson and I discuss her journey to find purpose and how her true self reemerged after years of surgical training and practice. We discuss mindfulness and personality traits and how a better understanding of yourself and those that surround you can enhance our ability to be phenomenal surgeons and doctors. And yes, human sexuality serves as the backdrop for the entire conversation. Woven in and out of the context of our lives, understanding sexuality by understanding self, communication, and personal interaction can lead us to a more mindful existence and relationships with both our intimate partners and those we are less intimate with. Enjoy. You can find Kelly's podcast at kellycaspersonmd.com backslash podcast on Apple Streaming or any other podcast streaming service. You can find her book, You Are Not Broken, on Amazon. And stay tuned. I'll put the link to her TED Talk as soon as it releases in the notes. Enjoy. My name is Phil Parazio, and I'm a urologic oncologist, a surgeon. Like many of you, I absolutely love what I do, and I would not choose another profession. But I have struggled with professional identity, practice efficiency, and wellness over the years. Operate with Zen is a podcast designed to explore a mindful approach to surgery and to being a surgeon. By discussing these struggles and mindful solutions, I hope together we can create a community of strong and healthy surgeons. Enjoy. Welcome to this episode of Operate with Zen. Today, I have the great pleasure of being joined by new friend, Kelly Casperson. Kelly, introduce yourself to the audience. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me, Phil. Uh, I'm a urologist and I've been in private practice for 11 years. And um, I started podcasting three and a half years ago now and then met you at the Rocky Mountain Urologic Society meeting this past spring and we hit it off. I was like, urologist podcaster needs to be my friend. Also into wellness and, you know, all the all the things. Yeah. Mindfulness. And and Kelly is so cool. Kelly is a podcaster, an author, now a TED talker on topics related to kind of to women's health and sexual health and sexuality and the podcast and topic and and everything called You Are Not Broken. And just give us a little bit about that topic, Kelly, because that's not what we're going to talk about today, but I want to, you know, kind of let that set the stage for what, where we're going. Yeah. So pre-pandemic, I don't know, four years ago now, I had a patient that I actually back in the OG of private practice, I did cystectomies. So I actually did a cystectomy on her and um, cured her for, from her invasive bladder cancer. And we just meet every year now and we're we're pretty well connected and it, it took a patient who was like i was connected with in order to to for the like this to happen but she was crying in my office one day on a yearly follow-up 
and was like, I have a sexless marriage. I feel so bad. I love my husband. I feel bad for him. I feel bad for me. I have no desire. And like, as I'm handing the box of Kleenex over to her, like the lightning bolts hitting my head of like, I was always told that like women were difficult. They took too long. They were challenging. We'll never, I was told in residency, we'll never figure them out. The OB-GYNs were handling them anyways. Like all of these things. And I'm like, who who's taking care of these women? Why don't we know? Why, why is it so difficult? Right. And so I started challenging all these thoughts that came in and I was like, started reading the books, listening to the experts. And I'm like, oh, we actually know a ton. It's just not getting out there. And I had this voice in my head and this voice was like, you need to talk, you need to talk. And I liked podcasts and I'm like, okay, well that maybe that's what I'll do. And then the more I learned, the more I just kept telling women like, well, you're not broken. Like, oh, you can't orgasm? Like 10% of women can't orgasm, mostly because we neglect the clitoris. Oh, you have pain with sex after menopause? 80% of people do because we don't give them estrogen for their vagina. And it just kept being, you are not broken, you are not broken. And I'm like, oh, there's the title to the podcast. So it turns out if there's a, if you have that voice, like that super annoying voice in your head, I learned this at a conference because I'm like, what's with that voice? Because then the voice went away. And I learned at a conference, which like resonated with me, they're like, that voice is your future self calling you forward. And if you don't listen to that voice, it's going to drive you batty or you're going to have, I think, possibly have a lot of regrets at the end of your life. So listen to her. She's telling you what you're supposed to be doing. I love that. And I think that's a great message for the for the listeners. You know, we, we have an audience of all ages, but we tend to have some younger uh, people in the crowd and I'm sure they have some voices pulling them in directions and you know, listening to that voice, I think is a really good, early, strong message. And my voice came at the seven-year itch. I actually had a urology professor in residency. He had us over for like a dinner and basically told us like our marriage was our best investment and it's very expensive to get divorced and like don't neglect that was basically like that's the take home I got from it. But he said, beware of the seven-year itch, whether it's your marriage or whether it's being in practice, because at the seven-year itch, you get restless and, and you're going to have like some demons, right? To And mine was boredom of like, oh my God, am I just going to see recurrent UTIs for the rest of my career? Like, this sounds horrible. And then the universe was like, oh yeah, you wanted a challenge here. Boom. Take this big topic and go big with it. So cool. So you've evolved into this really cool person and uh, you might've always been cool, Kelly, but, um, but tell us about... Tell us a little bit about your evolution as a surgeon, as a physician, you know, kind of into this space you are now, because that's one of the things we bonded at when we went over the meeting is that, you know, we were not always in great wellness spaces and kind of cool with ourselves and cool with the spaces that we're in. Not that we necessarily are right now, but we're being more formed, as you kind of said before, off air. So tell, take us a little bit through that story. Where did you start? What was your early surgical career like? Where did you think you were going? And How'd you end up here? Yeah, well, I didn't know any surgeons growing up, right? And then in med school, in I went to the University of Minnesota. There was one female urologist in the state at that time, and I I still to this day have never met her. Um, so there certainly wasn't a lot of female role models um, in urology or surgery in general. And I was kind of torn between OB-GYN, ER, and urology. I just I, I had the good fortune of rotating very early in third year to get exposed to urology. And I had Manoj Manga, who was at Minnesota at that time, who's like was my mentor. Um, and I just thought I loved it so much. I'll do whatever beats it. 
And so I went through the whole year being like, does this beat it? Is this? And I bought Harrison's, you know, the four volume Harrison's. I bought that because I wanted to like know everything. I love books. I absolutely love them. And then I realized, oh, you can't actually know everything in medicine. I want to know a lot about a little bit. <laughs> so urology served me very well in that. Um, but I think, you know, getting back to like feeling like the truest version of myself now that I have a podcast that I, you know, I cut my hair. I'm, I'm unabashedly myself. And I, a lot of us, I think, aren't in training. You really do have to conform to what, you know, the tunnel of training is. And, you know, that's a big conversation in and of itself of like, maybe you just have to, to conform and go through the mold. But at some point, your true self needs to, you need to find her again. Um, because I think that's truly where health comes from is like finding her and I coming back, right? Like I read books and talk about it on the podcast. Now I love fashion. I loved books and fashion when I was a kid. Right. And so it's like coming full circle of like, this is who I always was. She just went away for a little bit to get this like absolutely intense training, which I'm very grateful for. But like, I'm, I feel like I'm more full circle now and truly understand finally what it is to like work on self-love, find yourself. What do, what do you love? Right. What do you love doing? And like, don't forget to do that because it's very important. Yeah, it's, this is a great point. And I mean, how do you do that during training? And in retrospect, would you have done it differently? It's a great question. I, I don't know. I'm not like the wisest person in the world. I think I would have done it. I would have done it exactly. I loved where I trained. I loved the people I trained with. I loved that I chose not to have children during training because that was not going to be the best place for me to be a parent. So I, I don't think I would change any of that. Coaching wasn't around when I was training. It would have been cool, I think, to have a coach. I, I mean, I got into coaching probably three years ago now, kind of a, a little bit after the woman was crying in my office, right, in the evolution of me. And I'm like, dude, coaching has changed my life. What if I had had coaching when I was 24, right? Um, that's hindsight, though. Yeah, it, it's hard. I'm and happy. Yeah, I, you know, I always choose a very annoying Buddhist answer kind of there is that, you know, I wouldn't change anything, but I would change everything. And, you know, it's how could I be unhappy with where I am today? I'm super happy. I've got an amazing family. I love what I do on a daily basis, uh, you know, get to hopefully impact people in a variety of ways through cancer care, through podcasts and well, now wellness outreach, all of these things, coaching like you, um, but there's, there are so many little things I would have done differently. And, and one of them is I, I would have been more kind. There were, there were times in residency and training in my early career where I was just not kind. And that was the culture then. And not only was it accepted, it was almost perpetuated, right? You were, it was like, all right, yeah, you're, you're the surgeon. You're supposed to act like that. And I think that's some of the stuff I would have changed. And I think, I think looking back, I think I'd be the same person. And I think that's who I was then. I was just, as you said before, I was trying to conform to the surgical culture at the time and not being true to myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that a lot. And for me, like on the same, I because I think my, our stories are very parallel. For me, I almost even look back in like a loving lens of like, I couldn't be more kind at that time. I was just trying to survive, right? And like, she was incapable of being more kind and in of like, 
I'm not trying to beat her up. She did the very best she could with with the skills that she had, you know. But now that I know, it's like when you know better, you do better, right? It's like she she didn't know any better. She was she was just doing the best she could. Yeah. But <laughs> now in knowing things, like you hurt people along the way, right? And especially people who aren't surgeons who don't understand that kind of behavior that I think surgeons are very comfortable with, but you realize you leave like a wake of devastation behind you to people who aren't indoctrinated into the same like trauma story that you're in. The trauma, the trauma is real. And, and I think one of the ways tangibly I've reflected on this, I mean, my alcohol consumption has gone way down honestly, because I'm kind of more happy and consistent in who I am, kind of who I am and who I'm being are, are more aligned. And I think it was a huge coping mechanism during training and, and early faculty when I had those conflicts where I knew my behaviors and activities weren't weren't who I was, yet I was still acting that way. And that causes terrible cognitive dissonance and, and stress. And my way of dealing it was, was, was booze a lot, to be honest with you. Oh, I remember. So at third year of residency, we were a Q2 call all year long, right? And I remember that year, like coming home, pouring a glass of something red and like bringing it into the shower with me. And like thinking like it's so far from where I am now, you look back on it and you're like, whoa, like that was life. Q2 call and wine in the shower. And you're like, that's no way to live long term. And if we don't have tools and change and grow, we we get stuck in those kind of repetitive patterns of survival, right? And then you you miss your life. Yeah, and I think one of the things that mindfulness has helped me in kind of achieving that is is it helps you understand what you need at the moment. Where you're right, when we were in our twenties and running through residency, and you just you don't necessarily know what you need at the moment because we're not trained to do that, and. I think one of the real benefits of coaching and I think one of the real benefits of mindfulness training in any way you want to do that mindfulness is being more self-aware and understanding what you need. And uh, once again, I don't want to harp on alcohol, but I just say, you know, when I want to drink now, I want to drink. I know exactly what I want and I'm okay with a drink. And that makes me feel great where before it was harder to say no, it wasn't, it wasn't something that was just, you know, that you wanted or needed. It was just, it had to kind of happen and exist. And I think being self-aware, knowing who you are and what makes you tick is a big part of that. Yeah. I mean, I, so I got in, I, I got into not drinking um, two years ago now because I was, you know, doing coaching and you get like coaching for me, it was so many freaking insights that I was kind of like chasing the next big, like, what, what can I do now to change my life even more? And I was like, you know, it's probably challenging is to not drink. I, I wanted to see, I wanted to see what urges were like. I wanted to resist urges. I wanted to see what my thoughts were. I wanted to challenge what being uncomfortable in public where everybody, like I wanted, I was ready for that. Right. So I stopped drinking two years ago now and it was just for a six month thing. I was like, I'm going to do it for six months. And three, the three, three months were difficult. And then I got to six months and I was like, no, like I don't want it anymore. I was realizing even, and I was very mildly socially drinking at this point, like, you know, Fridays I'd have two glasses of wine and that was it. And I was like, even for those two hours, I was numbing and missing those two hours of my life where I didn't have the energy that I had. And that was no longer acceptable to me. I want to miss 
nothing of my life for the rest of my life now. And so for me, I've made the decision of like, I don't want alcohol in it because I don't want to be compromised even that much anymore. That's so cool, Kelly. Uh, I'm not quite there yet, but uh, but but I love it. Um, I love that story. So let's talk. You keep talking about coaching and harping on, on, on coaching. Let's talk a little bit about your style of coaching. And I want to hear more about these insights you've got while you've been a coach and how they've helped you. Yeah. Well, I got into coaching because of sex, which I love saying because it's like random. But uh, the more I was learning about female sexuality and how how our bodies work and, you know, genital urinary syndrome of menopause and like all of this stuff that we didn't didn't learn in medical school, I was like, oh, I can make you have a really healthy pelvis, right? Like I can fix your leakage and your prolapse and give you all the hormones and show you where your clitoris is and give you the best vibrator. And I can do everything to make a great pelvis, but your biggest sex organ is your brain. And if you don't clean up all those thoughts about sex, like it's dirty. Uh, I, I don't know how to accept pleasure. I don't know how to say no. I'm having sex just for my partner. Like all of these thoughts and like actions, I can't I can't make you have a better sex life. So I was like, who knows how to actually challenge those thoughts to like get under? Because so many people think our thoughts are facts, right? And they're not. They're just repetitive soundtracks that are easy for your brain to do. And um, so I got into coaching and I was like, oh, I need to learn how to do that magic and like really start seeing the thoughts. And going back to mindfulness, coaching's really what got me, because in mindfulness, they say like, you know, the present moment and like the pause between stimulus and reaction, right? Which is where all of your power is. That pause got a lot bigger for me with coaching because I was like, there's my thought. Now I'm going to choose my my reaction. So coaching really helped me in the mindfulness of like, you don't have to just react. You can be very intentional about a lot of things. It's practice, but it's not really changing who you are. Because I was always very resistant. Like, I'm just an angry person. I'm just reactive. That's just who I am. And I was very resistant to changing who I was. But I was a lot more open to what's the best me? And, and how can I create the best me? That was a lot more comfortable than me thinking there was something like wrong or broken. I love it. Huh. And for me, the the framework of coaching and the way kind of I was trained and the way I do it in a mindfulness setting has really helped me by seeing that process work for other people. So once again, it's setting intention. So why are we coaching? Like, why are we having a coaching session today? What's the goal? What do you want to get out of it? So set an intention, try and understand what that person is experiencing at the moment. I think reflecting back and help you understand what you're experiencing at the moment, as you said, that space in between the action and the and the reaction. And then really importantly for surgeons, we're taught to be such convergent thinkers. Here's a problem, how we fix it, is opening up to the world of solutions and really kind of thinking what else is out there, which is hard for us. And I think one of the most important things you said there too was thoughts are not facts. And that's one of the basic tenets of any mindfulness training, whether you know who's teaching you or what school of thought or how you're doing it. Thoughts are not facts. They're just thoughts. You know, you have the ability to act or react to them in any way you choose. That is your choice. Um, and yeah. that's that's a challenge. And you get to like once you do it for a while, then like for me, my favorite thing is if I can now just start laughing at the thoughts that my brain is having, right? Because you're you become the watcher. 
of your brain, you know, throwing a fit frequently. And you can just laugh and be like, there I am wanting to control everything again. Perfect. There I am thinking I'm entitled to this again. Perfect. <laughs> right. And so like, to me, it becomes very, and I think this is where like the concept of like the laughing Buddha and really that like sense of humor in these Eastern philosophies and mindfulness come in is like, you get to a point where you're like, your brain's just going to have these thoughts, man. And it's kind of silly and repetitive at some point. And like, there's lightness and humor in that to me. Yeah. And I think that's what you learn from formal meditation and mindfulness practices is you can't control the thoughts. And I remember the first time I formally tried meditation. I was like, I'm terrible at this. This is terrible. How, you know, I can't this get my- This is terrible. This is awful. I can't make my mind go blank. And the point yeah. is not to let your mind go blank. Right. It's actually to embrace all of that craziness and chaos yeah. and and not control it and just let it run and realize this is this is my base operating unit. It's going to go a little crazy from time to time and that's okay. Yeah. And then you get to, and then you get to see like, once you get that, then you're like, oh, this is how my brain reacts after I exercise. This is how my brain acts when it's hungry. This is how my brain acts when I've just gotten off of working for 12 straight hours. Right. And you get to start to see the consequences of kind of your environment and your body state on those thoughts because it's not always the same. Right. And then you were like, oh, Maybe exercise is super important, <laughs> right? Maybe eating regularly is awesome. Um, and you can kind of start paying attention to yourself and what your body needs. Yeah. I always find it when I want to yell at somebody who I would never yell at, then some like either I'm hungry, I'm tired, something, something like what's the check? What needs to go on there? Like my assistant's amazing. I should never be upset with my assistant. My wife and kids are amazing. Well, we all want to, you know. We we all have those moments, but you know, you kind of sit there and say, why is this thing that would normally never get me upset getting me upset? And one of the things you brought up, and I want to get to this, is the the angry reaction. And I think that was a, a lot of our kind of base operating model through training. That was surgical culture. That is still surgical culture. I think some of us are trying to get beyond that, but I think that is surgical culture that the first reaction is one of anger or frustration, you know, this is really affecting me. So tell us about kind of that process for you. Cause I know that was a, a big part of your evolution. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the, the funny part of the story is I found mindfulness, Buddhism, Eastern philosophy, John Kabat-Zinn, et cetera, et cetera, in third year residency. Again, it was like Q2 all along. I was basically like, I need to figure out how to control people. If I can control people, then my day is going to be a lot better. So I really went in to like, you know, the early years of the internet being like, how to control people was my plan. I was just not good. At, I, I was not good at it enough yet. I wanted to get better. And like in doing that search, I came across Buddhism, Eastern philosophy, John Kabat-Zinn of like, you can't. And the only person you can control is you. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, this is the answer to me trying to control people. And that was kind of the insight of like, oh, you mean I have control over myself? All right, well, fine. And then for me a lot in figuring out like, where does that anger come from? Where does that that instant reacting to people come from? A lot of my thoughts, and I'm sure it's different for everybody, but once you start getting under like the thought that leads the feeling, right? This shouldn't be happening right now. I don't have time for this. So wanting to control the scenario, time scarcity, 
And then thinking the other one I think is less likely for me, but I'm sure common is like, I know what's right. They're an idiot um, is probably number three for surgeons. And I'll still get triggered if the phone will trigger me a lot, right? The phone rings. I actually got coached on being on call, which was very helpful for me. Um, but the phone, and I'll just now just like take a breath, basically be listening to my thoughts as this person's talking, sometimes ho- hold the phone out a little bit just so I don't hear them enough that I, because I do not want to react to them. I just let them talk, listen to my thoughts, have a fit about how this is I don't have time for this. And why are they calling me? Which are two of my dominant, I think, reactive thoughts. And then thoughts go away. And I'm like, I'm here to help this person. This is literally my job. My job is literally to help this person and then go from there. Yeah. I remember. I think I've told this story before, but, you know, I was dating my now wife and, you know, I'd be on call and three o'clock in the morning, somebody in the ER wakes you up and it's some idiotic thing and you just let them have it at three o'clock in the morning and and she'd say um why'd you get so worked up i said well because i was right and they were wrong and it was stupid of them to wake me up and she said okay good luck going back to sleep now right yeah and guess what they get to go home in a couple hours when their shift's over and you just ruin your night and you ruin your next day so you know you can control yourself and incredible wisdom in, in that and you learn just you are there to help them it may be idiotic you may be correct doesn't matter. You know, act appropriately and behaviorally and, and be kind to yourself and other people and everything's going to go a lot easier. Yeah. And the secret is being nice and just managing your own shit early on so you don't have a freak out actually is less time than having to go clean up the mess that you created by the way you behaved. The amount know, of- nobody wants to hear that, but it's actually less time. If, if, you, if time scarcity is a reason that you're short with people, it's less time just to be nice finish the conversation. Move yep. On. The amount of apology emails and messages and pages I had I sent, uh, you know, when we had like text pages as a resident was just unbelievable. It was a huge time, you know, cleaning the mess that I made was much worse than just, if I'd just gone and taken care of the Foley catheter and said, thank you and wrote a note, I would have been done. I know. Coaching and, and residency. I know. It would and, have been and, the only thing I changed. Yeah. <laughs> I think we would all, I think we could all benefit from it now. Um, so I want to ask you kind of, so coming over the anger process and kind of that reaction. So part of it is recognizing it is just first recognizing your triggers. And then what's the next part of the process for you? How do you kind of move forward after recognition? Yeah. I mean, I read, I've read a lot of books on anger and like there's stoic books on anger and, you know, all this stuff. So like, at some point, I'm going to write a book either about anger or fear and just in the study of it, because I think it's fascinating. Knowing that, you know, for me, anger, I, I, I don't know if you know Enneagrams. I know we talked about Enneagrams at the conference. So I'm an Enneagram 8. Anger comes very, very easily to us. We're comfortable with it. I'm actually pretty comfortable with other people's anger, but realizing other people don't think like me, right? Other people are less comfortable with it. And knowing that it's not that you're going to try to make anger go away and never have it anymore. Like I still might always have triggers and basically coming from like a very loving place of being curious about myself. Like, Oh, that's what I learned. Instead of like, you need to not ever be angry again, I think is a much more challenging task than being like, what does your anger tell you about yourself? 
it's really important to me to protect myself. It's really important to me to protect other people. That's like the other Enneagram 8 thing is like I get angry when I see other people being wronged. Like I'm a big protective bulldog, right? Which is kind of a superpower, but it's there's the more you can learn about yourself on like what do you use the anger for? And then realizing anger is just energy. Right. So I have tons of energy. How else do I need to get my energy out? If I work out in the morning and, you know, again, things that coaching helps you do, but I'm such a better person having gotten that energy out of my body before. I don't want to take that into work. I want to get that energy out before I go into work. I'm a much better person having been exercised. I'm like one of those little terriers, right? Like I'll destroy your kitchen. <laughs> You've got to take me on a walk. And I love it. And the insights about personality are huge. You really have to know yourself and who you are before you can understand other people and how you're going to interact with them. And I, I like the Enneagram too. It's actually my favorite personality, if you want to call it personality assessment. I, I think mm -hmm. it's the one that gives the most insight, but there's so many ways to understand. Are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? Are you a morning person? Are you an evening person? All of these little things are so important to making your day more efficient and better is just understanding who you are. Totally. And I think for a lot of surgeons who I think are either eights or threes, sorry for people who don't know that, but we work with a lot of twos, which are very empathetic. They're in healthcare literally just to help people. Like they want to be friends and fix and people please everything. Right. And it's like understanding what other people around you, what their personalities are really helps because I don't know, you get to be a certain adult level when you're like, Oh, not everybody thinks like us, right? And that and there's power in knowing that. Because at first we just think everybody should think like us and how stupid are they because they don't. And then you're like, because they don't, because they're seven billion of us. Like, come on. <laughs> no, and then the value is just to go, we're better because they think differently than I do. Um, and you and just to to laugh at the near so I am a three eight split. Like I'm I'm a perfect three eight mix, which is super as you said, super common for surgeons. And it makes you realize as you're building your teams and your practices that you don't want to be around others, threes and eights all the time. It's problematic. You want yeah. the people who are going to balance you out and give more of the emotional uh, thought processes and kind of um, blend and contrast who you are to make your team better. You'll deliver better patient care. Your life will be better. You know, uh, All of those things happen by understanding who you are and surrounding yourself by people who are not like you. Totally. And then realizing your superpowers, right? Like you're super tactical. You will get stuff done, right? Like there are things that three eights are very, very good at, but other people are really good at other things that we're not so good at, which is actually awesome. Like I have so many twos as friends now. Like I love the twos, which is like pretty much an opposite of what an eight is. And it's like me understanding them just makes me love them so much more because I kind of see how they see the world. And it's so different than how I see the world, right? That you just have to like laugh and be like, that's what you got out of that experience? Wow. <laughs> and to get back to your earlier point, you know, you want to control people, you want to change them. You can't. So embrace who they are, love who they are, and it, it'll expand your thinking as well. Yeah. And well, and I think the more mind work, thought work that you do, at least for me, you start realizing how poorly everybody in this world manages their minds. And most people are just reacting, right? They're just reacting to the stimulus that's in front of them. And I think that can generate a lot more compassion towards them of like, they're doing the 
really the, literally the best they can with the tools that they have. And wouldn't it be nice if we all got coaching and we all did mind work, but that's not, there's no utopia that's going to happen. And you, and you just start seeing like all the unmanaged, I have like 25 unmanaged minds coming into my clinic every day, right? Like no wonder why we're tired at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's actually a, a perfect segue. So I was going to, I was going to ask you on what you've learned from this from kind of the sexual health, sexual education journey and how that applies to mindfulness. And there's some very mindful components of, of sexuality. Totally. I mean, to me, the topic of sex is so deep. Like it's, there's so much like self in there, discovering yourself, how to communicate, right? Like we're all really crappy communicators, super important if you want to have good sex. Um, it's got hormones, it's got gender dynamics. It has societal bias, right? Like the topic of sex is so deep that I'm like, this is a never ending, fascinating topic. So I love it just for that. But so many people don't, they don't communicate. They don't think about what they want. They've got so much kind of like societal shame, what their parents told them. Like there's so many overtones to somebody's sex life. That it's like, I can't just give you vaginal estrogen and lube and expect to change. It's not going to change everything, right? But there's so much work that I think is the final frontier of personal growth. Because it's like, you learning to communicate, you can use that at work. You figuring out what you want and how to ask for it, you can use that anywhere in your life, right? It's like the skills you develop in becoming better at sex, you're just going to be better at everything. I think that's so insightful. And, and if you think of the core components of mindfulness, which are, you know, basically being in the moment, being self-aware and uh, having kind of intention or, or purpose to that in a non-judgmental way. I mean, that's a strong sexual that, That's a good sex life. Right? <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and, so, and, you know, there's the neurobiology of it is like you, the orgasm will not exist in the brain if the frontal lobe is turned on. Like if you MRI, let's let's MRI somebody who's having an orgasm for fun. Their frontal lobe literally shuts off in order for the rest of their brain to have an orgasm. So if you're like thinking about the past or thinking about the future or worried about your body image, if you've got that frontal lobe going, you're like, yeah, I just feel like I just, you know, never get there, get aroused enough or have an orgasm. It's like, yeah, because you got to turn the frontal lobe off, man. Otherwise it won't work. I was a neuroscience, coming back to like who you were to who you were, I was a neuroscience undergrad. And so now I'm like, well, there's that. It all makes sense. Yeah. So I, I learned that. I did not. Well, so technically orgasms are very mindful. It's as close to a transcendent spiritual experience as most people ever get. And more fun than sitting cross-legged and uh, repeating mantras sometimes. Way more fun. You would probably burn more calories. <laughs> so tell us, um, do you have a current mindfulness practice? Oh, you know, what are you, what are you doing now? I am super digging the waking up app by Sam Harris right now. Okay. Have you done it? I have not. Oh, do it. Okay. Tell me about it. Tell her. Tell uh, her okay. So it. Sam, so Sam Harris is a neuroscience PhD. Basically wanted, you know, there's, it's amazing how many people right now are actually trying to research where consciousness is. And like just from a like philosophical slash neuroscience perspective is fascinating because there's like all these competing theories of where consciousness comes from. So he's kind of a consciousness guy. He's written a lot of books about it, but he's got this incredible app. It's a hundred dollars a year for the paid one. I kid you not, it's worth it. Like there's so much content in there, but he does a 
free 30 day meditation and it's like 10 minute meditation combined with like him doing instructions for 10 minutes you just alternate them and very useful trying to you know figure out where you are yeah. where's so, the self yeah and so are you yeah. 10 minutes a day 20 minutes a day and then maybe not every day what's your uh, you, i'm usually 10 minutes a day so i the best time for me to meditate and to do that app is after i work out and i work out in the morning and mindfulness got so i would i was this is the power of thoughts right if you have like can humor me for this story but i think it'll help people i was literally on the couch four years ago 2019 i was on the couch in 2019 and i had the thought like I, women with big biceps i'm just like women who have toned arms like those people have commitment right like i just I, they, I, they're very attractive to me and i'm like yeah so i'll get some good arms when i retire and I caught myself having that thought. And you'll catch yourself having these thoughts and you'll be like, what kind of bullshit is that? Like, I don't even know when I'm going to retire. And my plan is to work out then, right? And it was enough of a catch that I was like, that seems like bullshit. So I joined a accountability group run by a female anesthesiologist because I'm like, if this is a female physician who has kids, who works out, so now I know it can be done, right? So you find somebody who's like you to be like, okay, it can be done. I followed her. She got me started. And she's like, if you stick with this for a year, your life will change. And I'm like, that sounds like bullshit. Probably not. <laughs> right? Like me in my normal surgeon thing, like, no. And uh, I started, I worked out consistently for a year. And the coaching of your brain throwing a fit because it does not want to be fit, right? It doesn't want to go work out in the morning. I was not a morning person. I did not wake up early to work out in the morning. That was not who I was. And now I'm how many years, four years in, I, it'll never leave me at this point. But like the mind work that it takes to put fitness into your life, she was a hundred percent right. Your life will absolutely change. So long story short, I work out in the morning, then I meditate, then I go upstairs and start my day. Yeah. Um, and I do it before the kids get up in case anybody's curious. Like I can't do it when I have kids. Yes, you can. You do, I do it before the kids go, but a lot of times that the kids wake up, they'll come down and they work out with me, which is usually them just jumping around on a yoga mat and being on my bike. Um, you just integrate it into your life. You be, you become a person who works out and it'll yeah. change your life. I love that, Kelly. There's so many strong lessons in there. And the first thing I'll say is you and I are so remarkably similar. I do the same thing. Um, I tell everybody, I wake up at 4.30 in the morning to work out. I'm a morning person, but I'm not a 4.30 in the morning workout per person. But that's the time I know as a surgeon, as a dad, that is my protected time. If this is a priority, you know, if this is one of my priorities is have taking self-care and being healthy, it has to happen at that time because that's the only time it can consistently happen. I spend a minimum, you know, depending on the day, 20 minutes doing physical activities and at least 10 minutes doing a mindfulness practice. And I love saying that to people too, is we spend all of this time working on our physical bodies we spend much more time in our head and we should be really kind of cultivating that on a daily basis. And you're right. You start, you build that routine and you build that practice in, and our bodies don't want change. They don't. And so it's hard. There's a lot of inertia to overcome at the beginning, but once you establish the inertia, the same principles come into effect. It doesn't want to change back. And so if you don't get your daily workout in, if you don't get your mindfulness practicing, you don't feel right for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. And you're right. It takes time. Um, 
I think a year is is fair, maybe quicker than that, but you definitely will kind of pick up those good routines and it will change who you are. And the last thing I'll say is you really, ident- the key is changing your identity. It's not, I'm someone who works out. I'm someone who does mindfulness. No, no, this is who I am. I I am fit. I am concerned with my health, my well-being, taking good care of myself physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and I'm going to be stronger because of it. And then it becomes easy. Totally. I was at, I was at my primary. I go to the doctor. Like we all should go get checked up. So I met the doctors literally yesterday, and she's like, "So do you do you take time for exercise?" And I just like I'm like just a perfect patient in the doctor's office, and we're kind of friends too. But I wanted to be like, "Come on, have you looked at me? Like I've been doing this for four years. Can you not tell?" And my husband's like, "She's just checking her boxes." I'm like, "She asked me if I work out." <laughs> like, yeah, I'm mildly you- offended. Tell me you can notice something. Yeah. Yeah. But then it just becomes funny because you identify with the person who's who's fit, right? And then you're like, you can't tell. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> but okay. yeah, I think my for me, it was like, because all this bullshit were set, like arms for the beach in six weeks, abs in six to eight weeks. I And then six to eight weeks go by and you're like, I see there's nothing happening. And you're like, that's because that's all lies. Like the the skill is to keep going at month three and four when you don't feel like you've done anything except for sleep less because you're waking up in the morning to work out. You coach, you got to work on your mindset to keep going. And then by a year, you're like, yeah, my ass doesn't look like everybody else's ass anymore because of these teeny little changes all year long. But it takes a while. Your body is loth to change. Yeah. And and so are your practices too and your behaviors. So if anybody out there struggling, you know, with kind of the anger reactive behavior that we were talking about before, this takes practice too. And there are lots of ways to work on controlling your emotions and controlling your behaviors. And the first thing is calling them out and just recognizing them. Just say, all right, I'm feeling angry in the moment. That's the first step. Or I'm feeling happy in the moment. I'm feeling sad. Whatever it may be, um, calling that out, then you can act on it or react to it. And you can create the space to to be thoughtful and mindful about what you're doing. Yeah, but you know, you're assuming that surgeons are okay with feelings because because look at all the work you've done. I, you know, when I got into coaching, I'm like, surgeons have one feeling, and that feeling is tight. No, you. And most surgeons are like, yeah, that's the feeling, tight. Yeah, no, you're, and you're absolutely right. And I think that's why these conversations are so important. That it's okay to have feelings. We all have them talk about it, normalize it. I, I try and do that on a regular basis. Hey, what's going on in your life? Are you working out? Are you eating? You know, These are just having normal conversations and realize that we're normal people too, or we should be norm- normal people. You know, we're, we're humans. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we do kind of extraordinary things on a daily basis. We do some pretty challenging things that other people couldn't do or, or choose not to do. But at our core, we're still humans and we have feelings and emotions and thoughts and pushing them away is not helpful. Yeah. I was at two points on that. I was just coaching a surgeon who's transitioning from fellowship to private to attending hood. And they were like, I'm nervous. Is that normal? And I'm like, yeah, it's totally normal. And I'm like, and I'm no, it would be invalidating to tell you not to be nervous, that you shouldn't be nervous. That's the feeling you're feeling. Let's validate that. Right. And we talked about like what to do with with the feeling of normal or feeling the feeling of nervous, sorry. And uh just validating like this is what I'm feeling and that's normal. And it's energy. 
and what can we do about energy right and and should we buff because she's like maybe i should just read more another book before i and i'm like that might be buffering that might be covering up your feelings right and so it was a great coaching session and then another story is i had this woman come into my office with low sexual desire low libido and working night shifts. She's not taking care of her body. She's got two kids. The husband's basically leaving her, aka divorcing her because she won't sleep with him enough. Like your typical disaster, which is incredibly common, by the way. And I looked at her and I'm like, how many hours out of a week do you have for yourself? And she said, zero. And I'm like, so zero hours out of a week you have to take care of yourself. And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, and somebody else is telling you you're the problem because you're not having enough sex with that person. She's like, yeah. And I'm like, you ever think that that's not your problem? That's not your fault, right? Like women, this woman is just beating herself up over low libido when like spiritually, relationally, physically, there's nothing that supports a healthy sex drive in this person. So just, you know, going back to like how sex is kind of like the the looking glass into like all components of your life of like, it, it doesn't live in an, like by itself. It's got all, you got to take care of all these other things to have a great sex life. It's so cool. And, and I think, as you said, it's such a great metaphor, such a great eye opener into what else is going on in our life. There's so many great lessons from, from sexuality and our sexual health that I think most of us uh, ignore, to be honest with you, or not necessarily ignore, just honestly oblivious to it. I don't think enough people know. And, I get that's that's your mission now, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that, that that that's what the TED Talk. The TED Talk is adult sex ed will unbreak the world. Is like the you know TED Talk title, but it's really. And I talked to this woman. I'm like, listen, this is your opportunity for personal growth, right? Like this is the canary in the coal mine of saying like, how are you choosing to live your life, and is this the life you want to be living? But don't think that like a high libido exists in a bubble without you know all this other stuff. But I think. So many adults feel broken because the sex ed we got was a disease and pregnancy prevention plan in eighth grade, right? And so we didn't learn to learn how to communicate, learn to talk about our feelings, learn to be present and mindful, learn to navigate different libidos living in the same house. And that sex means different things to different people, right? And we never communicate that. Like, it was like two years. I've been married for 14 years. Two years ago, I'm like, what's sex mean to you? And my husband told me, and I'm like, whoa, that is different than what it means to me. <laughs> like, maybe people should have this conversation like early on. Just it's very insightful. Yeah. And it and it causes tremendous uh strife when people don't understand where the other person is coming from and what their motivations are. And okay. there's a lot of confusion and easily solved with conversations. Totally. Well, especially if we think you should have the same libido as me, right? There's so much shoulding, like, the, you know, my book is Stop Shoulding All Over Your Sex Life, but there's so much shoulding. You know, people will be like, well, how much sex should we be having? And I'm like, you're going to make it like eight fruits and vegetables and, you know, eight hours of sleep. And like, you're going to take take all the goodness out of it. I'm like, I would never prescribe so many, how many times a week you're supposed to be having sex. Like what's good for the relationship, right? But so many people are suffering because they did not get this education. Yeah. And, you know, I, I kind of made light, I made light of it and I said, it's an easy conversation, but it's not an easy conversation. No. Once you've done all this work, it's easy. Like, Correct. Hey, hubby. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but yeah, so, getting to that point is, yeah. it's, it's awkward. 
Yeah. What advice do you give people about that conversation? Because this is another good metaphor. Difficult conversations happen in all facets of our life. This is one that people probably shy away from a lot. And perhaps helping them today to have this conversation may help them with some of the other difficult conversations in their lives. Yeah. Um, don't do it right after a, a failed event. <laughs> Naked and vulnerable with like a crappy sex. Don't. Not, not the time. Um, clothed. I love walking. There's something neurobiologically about being in parallel with somebody, not looking in them in the eye that allows a lot of conversations to happen. Plus, but the body's having movement. So walking's really good. Um, eye statements. I feel like I want us to be closer and talk about our sex life instead of in contrast to you statements, right? Like you never give me an orgasm. You never want to have sex with me. You're the problem. That's not going to go as well. It's like, Sex to me means that we're bonded and it's my way of knowing that you love me. I feel like I want to have more of that in my life because I feel really lonely, right? So notice the I statements and how I feel, right? And then a lot of this is being a good listener too, right? Don't interrupt your partner. Let them get their their feelings and statements out because this is probably a slow conversation because we never said this stuff before. So being... And you can tell, like, you know, you're in clinic. You can tell when you're telling somebody about their kidney tumor. And you can tell when all they want to do is tell you something back, right? Like, you can pick up on that. It's like, be the good listener. Drop the agenda. You're just you're just here to gather some information. And I think so many people think there's, like, one sex talk. Like, no, 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 no. You get to keep, you get to keep talking about it because talk about it when it's good because inevitably it's not going to get good. 40% of men have erectile dysfunction by age 40. Like there's going to be hiccups in your sex life, whether it's a health diagnosis or now there's a new baby or, you know, whatever it is, like there's going to be hiccups. If you can talk about it when things are going relatively well, it's easier to revisit it when it's, when it's rocky. Great, great advice. Not only for a sexy, uh, sexy, uh, healthy sex life, but I think these are great communication tools in general, right? If you have to have a difficult conversation with somebody, use a lot of the I statements, sometimes doing it in a uh, a more public place where you can walk and talk is sometimes better than behind closed doors in a very kind of you know confined situation, which can create stress just by being in that situation. And listen, listen more than you talk. Such an important thing, especially when you have an important agenda item to get out still to to get that agenda item out and listen, hear what the other person has to say, taking their body language, how they react to these things. So important. Yeah. And it, you know, and, and it's trying to figure out then when do you, because the question is, when do you bring in a professional, right? Like when do you have a, a marriage and family therapist, sex therapist, some sort of couples coach, something like that. I think a big one that I see a lot is stonewalling, right? Which is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, according to the Gottman Institute of like, what's really not healthy for a relationship, stonewalling. So I see a lot of people and they're like, I want to talk to my partner about our sex life, but they shut it down every single time. Right. And they basically like ban the conversation from the house. And to me, I'm like, if you've really tried several times and it's an absolute no, that might be a time to bring in, bring in a professional or to say, I need to talk about this. This is incredibly important to our relationship. Because sex is uncomfortable, right? And so some people's way of coping is to totally shut down, to stonewall the person. But it's, that's not going to lead to anywhere good. Great insights, Kelly. 
So we've been talking for almost an hour now. I want to give you the opportunity. What haven't we talked about? What do we need to talk about? What should the what should this audience know? I mean, I think we covered so much, but if there's one more thought that I think I challenged and it worked for me, so I know it's going to possibly help other surgeons is the time scarcity mindset that we all have. I remember like getting into coaching and I was coached on my time scarcity. So I was, it was COVID. I'm in private practice. They shut down our surgery center. We were open two days a week just to try to keep people out of the emergency department. Right. So I literally had nothing. I had, literally couldn't, we couldn't go to a park. Right. You remember, remember this? Like you couldn't go anywhere. I landscaped the, my front lawn. I had that much time and I'd been living in my house for like three years prior. And I remember, so I was going into a five day weekend. I literally did not have work again till like next Wednesday. And I was on my daughter's door going to her room and I was turning the handle. And my thought was, I don't have enough time. And it was the same thing about being on the couch with the biceps and I'll work out when I retire. I caught the thought and I'm like, isn't that bullshit that I have literally five days with nothing to do? I literally can't go anywhere. And I have the thought, I don't have enough time. And that's when I was like, oh, that's not true. It's just a repetitive, well-worn, like that's our training, right? We do not have enough time. You do that for years. You just start thinking you don't have enough time. And I caught it. And I got to challenge it. And now I'm like, I get more done now than I ever have in my life because I got coached on my time scarcity mindset. People are like, how do you have all this time to like podcast and write a book and have a blah, 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 and still do urology? I'm like, because we have time and we make time for what's important. And I don't waste time by drinking, which totally got rid of my energy, right? Just mindlessly scrolling for hours and hours like you prioritize your time and so i remember being in the or and there's an anesthesiologist and i'm like you know that time scarcity is just an illusion and he was like what <laughs> he's like what are you even talking about i'm like it's just a thought time scarcity is just a thought because i had like done enough work to be like it's all made up my friends you're creating your own stress congratulations and i will say if you truly are overworked and working so, so, so much where there isn't enough time for everything else. I don't think it's sustainable um, as far as like healthy body, healthy mind. But there are some people who literally have no time because they're just working so, so much. And uh, so I want to, I want to pay homage to that too. Like you do, it does take time to take care of yourself, but the time scarcity will destroy you. The t time scarcity and I'm not a good enough mom. I got coached on both of them to change, change my life. Incredible. Um, yeah, I, I think the time scarcity, time management is a huge piece. And I think the first part of that assessment is exactly like you said. There are truly people who do not give themselves enough time in the day. They're just 12, 14 hours every day of the week. And you don't have enough time. It is not sustainable for a 30-year surgical career. It's just not. It's not sustainable for almost any career, to be honest with you. And the second part of it is exactly like you said, is that time scarcity illusion. Once you recognize what's important, you spend your time doing the things that are important and give you fulfillment and joy, and it creates more discretional energy and time and energy for you. And it's this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, but you have to understand to your point about all of this, who you are, what you enjoy, what's your purpose, what makes you happy. And that is hard work, sitting there, talking to yourself, spending time. 
kind of investigating who you are and, and who you want to be. And, and that's the real challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I read like, you know, you are your longest relationship. Like your children will leave. Your spouse will might die before you. Like all the th- friends will move. Like you are your longest relationship. Investing time into getting to know that relationship. I w- I had the great opportunity. And the other thing about time scarcity is you got to freaking say no to stuff, man. Like learn to say no. And if you're a people pleaser, figure that out about yourself. So I somebody was like, oh, will you be vice chair of the department or something like that? And I know myself enough now that I'm like just laughing at that idea. And I'm like, I don't think that's where my skill sets lie, you guys. <laughs> like, you, you know me? That would not be good. Um, but to be able to, I said no. Like it's a, it's a nice prestigious thing to do. It's kind of what you do when you've been here long enough, right? Like all the things of why I should do this. But I'm like, I'm going to say no. And I'm going to realize it's not where my skill set is. And it is not at the end of the day. I do not care enough about being vice chair of surgery to ever say yes to that position. And it's like, had I not done that work, I would have said yes to something that wasn't a good fit, took up a lot of my time. And, you know, everything you say yes to, you're saying no to something else. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the biggest disservices we still propagate in surgery to early trainees and early career people is to say yes to everything that is so wrong on so many levels it is easy to say yes to everything. The skill set is learning how to say no, identifying what's important to you. And as you progress through your career, you will say no and no to more and more things. But in the beginning, yeah. it's you you will say yes to more things and that's okay. But you, the skill set is actually learning how to say no. And, and that's one of the things we need to change in surgery. In, in my opinion, I think that's one of the biggest things we need to change. Yeah. And the more successful you are, whether that's in academics or podcasting, like whatever, whatever it is, you will get a ton of opportunities and you get to learn how to say no to them because otherwise, because, and this is, you know, going back to having little kiddos is my kiddos aren't, they don't, they don't know how to fight for their time. You know, like they're not saying, they're not looking at me and how many times, like if I don't say no to stuff, they, my time with them gets sacrificed because they're not fighting for it. They don't know how they don't have that power. And so I think about that too, of like, I, I am, it's my job, my job to protect my time with my family because they, they can't do it. Yeah. And you mentioned stoicism before. This is one of the, the great tenets of, of stoicism and I'm going to butcher the Marcus Aurelius quote, so I won't even try, but I'll, I'll just paraphrase. It. I got you know, your back. Yeah. It, it, I'll you correct know, you. Don't worry. Yeah. I'm sure you will. <laughs> it, you know, it's basically that we have so much time in our lives if, if we just didn't waste so much of it, there's so much we could get done, right? That yeah. would be enjoyable and fulfilling and all of those things. Yeah. But we we spin our wheels on on things that are unimportant to us. And the trick is finding out what is important and what brings you joy. I think a lot of surgeons, just in my coaching with surgeons, I would agree with what you said, but they're like, she spends so much time, time trying to figure out the right answer, right? Like, should I take this vice chair job? Should I not? Should I take a different job? Should I not? Blah, blah, blah. And really the skill of like you decide and then you have your own back. You you have your own back now. You made that decision, right? And instead of this like, because we spend so much time like do everything right to get into med school, do everything right to get into residency. do and, and then we get to life life and we're like, I need to make sure I'm doing it right. And you're like, no, there it's there's that, that's not how this part works, right? This part's about having your own back 
and figuring it out. I think it was Tony Robbins who said people underestimate, they overestimate what they can do in a year and they underestimate what they can do in a life. And that is a very good quote that I like to come back to. There's always enough time. And everything happens, again, when it's the right time. I I used to always be like, I don't have time, I don't have time. And when you do it, you're like, because today was the right time to do it. Today wasn't the right time to do it. And it's just like, so I have so much more peace with that sort of mindset. Yeah, it's one of the things I go over with the trainees and, the, and some of the people I coach is also, that's the beauty of medicine. We have so much fluidity. We can change. You don't like what you're doing today? You can change it. You can do something completely different with our skill set and our training. You know, we're not pigeonholed into one career, one job for the rest of our lives. We can be fluid. There's so many things we can evolve into. And so, if you don't like what you're doing today, or you you turn around in retrospect six months or a year and you made a bad decision, guess what? You can always go back. We have the fluidity and we have that grace in surgery and in medicine where we have a skill set that can evolve. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the power of coaching right? Because we don't think naturally like that. You know, we think there's one answer and everybody's just on this academic ladder and there's only one way to do things. And I think it's very damaging to a lot of people, like people who become physicians and surgeons, like we're very smart. We're very high functioning and uh, it can be our detriment as well as like this greatest gift. Absolutely. Well, Kelly, we said some incredible, incredible things. Um, I want to point out to people that they can listen and hear more from you on your podcast. You are not broken. They can find your book on Amazon. I'll put the link in the notes and your upcoming TED talk. When it comes out, I'll make sure I up to, update the notes so that people can find that as well too. Super exciting. Thank I'm you. super excited to hear that. It's going to be good. 12 minutes, 12 minutes of me. On, oh, it's going to be amazing. Circle. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> um, so I just want to highlight some of the some of the amazing things you said over the last hour and, and we'll wrap up there. You know, we started with your journey. And one of the early things you said was listen to that voice in your head, the nagging one, that is your future self. And not only should you be encouraged to go after it, but if you don't, it can actually cause some, that th those are the source of your possible potential regrets later in life. We talked a lot about conforming versus self-identity, particularly during training and as we come up as surgeons. And you talked a lot about uh, kind of self-love and finding what you love doing, which was really the segue into your career and your success in sexual education and sexual health and sexual medicine, which has really been outstanding. And I think that was one of the, the I think, most powerful things today was the metaphor of sexuality, mindfulness, and personal growth. You called it the final frontier of personal growth. And if we can learn how to be better sexual partners and better sexually in tuned with, and not necessarily partners with another person, partners with ourselves, that we can live healthier and happier. We can be more present and in the moment and understand what's right for us and how we can move forward in a positive and, and healthy direction. So there were so many good things today, so many good points. Um, those are just some of the ones that really stuck out to me. And I want to thank you for your time. And I can't wait to see you again in person and, and see all the great things coming uh, in, the, in the future, Kelly. It's going to be great. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. Talk to you soon.